Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. Idolatry is a heart issue. It's when we allow anything other than God to be the thing that rules our life. It's that thing that we will give anything to obtain or give anything to protect. And one of the easiest ways to find your idols is to find what you fear most. What do you fear most? What are you afraid will happen to you? What would you say, man, I would die if I lost this? Open God, oh my soul. Old Testament, we see where God's people turn to foreign idols, and God has to discipline them to bring them back to Himself. We in the New Testament era like to think that because we've chosen to follow Jesus, we don't have those kind of problems. Not true. We can at times put things like money or jobs ahead of our relationship with God. Pastor Ricky will be teaching on the disastrous result of Israel's turning away from God and His faithfulness to them nevertheless. Well, let's join Pastor Ricky for part one of his message, Risking Everything. We have been going through the book of Esther, and we've found Esther at a crucial moment in the story. And we're gonna see Esther today, in this part of the text, decide to take a major risk. And anytime you decide to take a major risk, it reveals a lot about you. It reveals what you fear and what you trust and what you love. And it's gonna reveal a lot about Esther. But I'm also praying that at the same time, God would reveal a lot about our hearts today, that we would see ourselves better and learn to take godly risks. So the big idea for today is simple. The sovereign rule of God enables us to risk everything. The sovereign rule of God, understanding that, getting that enables us to risk everything. So with that, let's jump into um, what really is the prologue to the climax of the text this week, chapter four, verse one. Now, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're wondering, what, 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 what is this reaction? Well, the reaction is that an enemy of God's people, this man, Haman, has essentially bribed the king to commit genocide, to exterminate all the Jewish people everywhere in the Persian kingdom. That's why Mordecai is reacting this way. Verse two, so he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed, listen to this, no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. It was very important how you entered the king's presence. Verse three, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, as we mentioned before, there is no reference to God in the book of Esther. There's no even direct reference to prayer in the book of Esther, and we've seen that this is intentional. The book of Esther is about where God is actually at work when we don't seem to see his hand moving anywhere. 
And we've seen that God is at work throughout the story. And so that pattern of almost concealing the obvious work of God continues here. And it would be strange to us that there would be no prayer. There's fasting and weeping and lamenting. Well, I believe that's part of the way that the text is written to kind of conceal obvious references to the work of God. But I do believe that there was a spiritual component to this seeking of the Lord because this passage in particular, we can't get into all this, lines up with Joel chapter two, one of the prophets, where the prophet says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, the exact same phrase there, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So it seems that this is meant to be read kind of against Joel chapter two, as as being one of those times where God's people turned back to him. Faced with extermination, they finally turn to the Lord. Now, verse four, when Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Now, as we've seen before, Esther was so disconnected from her people and the things of God, she did not even know her people were in danger of being exterminated. We've seen many choices Esther made along the way, leading her to essentially renounce her old identity as one of God's people and instead embrace a Persian identity with all that entails in the court of the king. And she's so disconnected that she doesn't even realize what's happening. Verse six, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. As we've seen before, Mordecai is one of the officials in the king's court. He has sources, as we'll see in this book, he has sources everywhere. He knows that this decree did not just come from nowhere. He knows exactly who's behind this plan. He knows everything about the plan right down to the amount of the bribe given to the king. And out of all his sources and all his contacts in the empire, he knows there is only one person that's close enough to the king to make any difference. The only person, the only Jewish person in the kingdom high enough to make any dent in this or have any chance of turning this back is Esther. The only hope of God's people is Esther, humanly speaking, right here. So there it is. Mordecai is calling Esther to take the greatest risk of her life. Now we're gonna ask three questions about the action going on here, about what's going on in the text, and then also what's going on in our own lives. So the first question is this. What prevents godly risk? Now, I'm saying godly risk because there really is foolish risk, 
right? There are YouTube videos devoted to people taking foolish risks, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a godly kind of risk. And we're gonna see why Esther does not immediately, as soon as Mordecai asks, say, yep, done, I'm going to the king. No, instead, what we read is verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. What's interesting here is Esther is not like explaining this for the first time to Mordecai. She's not explaining the Persian court rules to Mordecai. No, he has sources everywhere. He's well-connected. He knows the laws probably as well or better than Esther. He's a wily government official. So why is Esther saying this to him? Well, Esther is explaining in not so many words why she cannot do what Mordecai is asking and go into the king. And she has a point here. Only a handful of people, according to ancient Near Eastern research, only a handful of people had the ability to walk in to the presence of the king uninvited. In our U.S. government, there's sometimes a big deal made over who has walk-in privileges to the president, who can just kind of walk, waltz into the Oval Office, interrupt the president with a request or with, with some update. It's the same way, except in Persia, if you do it when he doesn't want you, you die. That's one difference there. It says there is but one law. Now, as we've seen before, the king is very concerned with his people and everyone else submitting to him. In fact, as we read earlier, he's so concerned about what goes on in front of him, he doesn't even want sad people around him in the court. Did you catch that? Mordecai could not come and just talk to Esther because you couldn't even get close to the king if you were sad or mourning or fasting or had ashes on. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to know. The presence of the king is a sacred thing in Persia. And so to waltz into the king's presence would be to take your own life into your hands. Now, the other thing that we learn is that Esther's honeymoon is long, long, long over. Sometimes you hear of a couple that they don't talk much. You say, oh, we don't talk much anymore. You know, our marriage isn't great right now. Okay, this is where their marriage is at. They have not seen each other for 30 days, okay? That means that the king has not called for Esther, hasn't wanted to see Esther. She is out of favor with the king. The king that was so enraptured with her a couple chapters ago, now he has other interests And add to this the background of the first story in Esther where the first queen, Vashti, who defied the king, defied, we found out, an unstable, extremely sensitive, extremely emotional king who is extremely sensitive to to people questioning his authority, right? That's not a great combination of circumstances when you're hoping to walk into the king and not die. You've got a moody king who doesn't like to be defied, especially by his wife. Not good. Now, all this sounds reasonable then. Esther's kind of pushback sounds reasonable on a surface level. 
But as we've also seen in the rest of the Bible, the Bible is full of people taking great risks and trusting God and stepping out there. And against the backdrop of this, we read the stories of times like Daniel, which would be a couple generations back from Esther, maybe one generation back, where, where Daniel boldly stands up to the king or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego boldly stand up to the king. And Esther is saying, no, we're not, we're not going there. Why, why doesn't she take this risk? Because... She has replaced serving God with serving someone else. She's replaced God ruling her life with something or someone else ruling her life. And biblically, the category for that is the category of idolatry. In the whole Bible, idolatry is not just you, you make like a wooden statue and you bow down to it. No, idolatry is a heart issue. It's when we allow anything other than God to be the thing that rules our life. It's that thing that we will give anything to obtain or give anything to protect. And one of the easiest ways to find your idols is to find what you fear most. What do you fear most? What are you afraid will happen to you? What would you say, man, I would die if I lost this? Now, some of those aren't even bad things, but when that thing begins to rule and reign over your life, it becomes a bad thing. So what's What's Esther afraid of here? What, what are some of her potential idols here? Now, I wish we got an insight into the inner workings of Esther's mind and that the author just does not give us that, but we can see some of these things, I think, through her actions. The first thing that she's very concerned about is safety, right? Simply put, she doesn't want to die. And in fact, that's probably one of the main reasons she obeyed the king's edict to begin with, that she allowed herself to be taken into this essentially harem and married off to a pagan king. There's safety, there's also comfort. We're not sure what she thinks, but she doesn't seem to have a problem with the comforts of the king's palace, rejecting none of them. She's not identifying with her people. She has no idea what's going on with her people. And potentially the last one, acceptance. She's been very careful to hide her Jewish identity even to the point of eating unclean foods and taking part in these pagan beauty rituals and earning favor with people in the king's court and with the king. She has earned a lot of acceptance in this Persian court. And perhaps reluctantly she earned it or perhaps proudly she earned it, we don't know. But we do know that if she walks in, she puts all of that on the line. Now, here's the thing about Esther. I have identified with Esther more than I expected as we've studied this book. See, when I read the Bible, I want to be like Abraham setting off to a new land, right? I want to be Peter and Paul who are preaching the gospel at the risk of their lives. And yet so often I look a little bit more like Esther, where there's this big moment, the Lord, we kind of know the Lord is calling us to do something and we go, you know, Lord, let me explain this to you. The Lord says, I know. See, we're a little bit more like Esther than we think. First, I think we often can fear for safety, and safety can be what drives us in life. We in America um, live in one of the safest places in the world. In fact, in El Paso, we live in the physically safest city of over 500,000 people. And yet in America, we can still make an idol out of our safety and security over time. And this can extend to all different kinds of areas of our lives. We can obsess over financial safety and security, 
rather than bringing our money before God and asking him how he wants us to use the money he's given us. And instead, if we feel that God's leading us to do something or God's word calls us to do something like aiding the poor, we can go, listen, Lord, I know you say that, but let me explain this to you. You don't understand where my 401k is at. You don't understand where our budget's at. Now, I'm not talking about foolish risks again, but I'm talking about obeying the commands of the Lord. We can also obsess over physical safety at times. We can obsess over physical health at times. And this can lead us and hold us back from doing things that God called us to do. It was funny, a, a few weeks ago, this is a while ago now, we, our, our, Jen and I just volunteered. Some people in our neighborhood were very kindly trying to put together a, a neighborhood watch. And so we volunteered to host the neighborhood watch in our meeting when somebody else couldn't do it. And so I thought, well, this is great. I'll get to meet some of the neighbors. This is good. Just building relationships, trying to see where people are at. And one of the people came in and said, man, I'm so grateful you did this. Man, it's really great of you especially letting all of these strangers into your home. And I mean, they could be looking for stuff that you have. They could be casing your house out. And who knows? I mean, you don't know these people from Adam, but I, man, I really appreciate you, you, know, you doing that. And I thought, okay, I wasn't nervous before, <laughs> but now, you know, now I'm, I'm like looking at people coming in neighborhood watch like, yeah, yeah. You know, where's the Lord saying, hey, as Paul said, share your life and, and potentially share the gospel with people. I'm going a little bit like, well, I don't know. I don't know, maybe you stay over there and I stay over here, okay? We can make that an idol sometimes in America. We can also make our comfort an idol here in America. We don't want our comfort to be taken away and we forget that we have so many comforts. And here's the thing, I think we worry a lot about our comforts being taken away because we have a lot of comforts that could be taken away, Right? We could lose this and this and this and this and this and this. We can get there. We can fear losing acceptance. I don't mean like acceptance in a, like a Facebook way, okay? Like, okay, you post something about Jesus and you have that one friend that's like, I don't believe in the Lord. You know, that's okay. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not real life. What I'm talking about is losing acceptance where it gets weird in real life. I mean, with your extended family. I mean, with your neighbors, I mean, with your coworkers, I mean, wherever standing for the Lord or following Jesus would make you unpopular or uncomfortable. See, all of these things have the effect that when we hear the clear command of Scripture, when we feel the tug of God's Spirit toward doing something, we tend to go, no. See, what happens is our idols sometimes, when we hear the commands of God, our default moves from being yes to being maybe, and then sometimes to being no. When we read the commands of scripture, we go, okay, I, well, listen, Lord, I don't, un, I don't know if you understand what's going on here. That's what holds us back from godly risk. But second, Esther changes during this passage. What enables godly risk then? What enables her to move from where she is to taking this risk for the people of God? We're gonna see this in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, I wish I got Mordecai's tone here. There's so much here in the tone. 
there's a lot of discussion about how he's saying this. Some people think that he's straight up like threatening Esther. Like you don't wanna know what's gonna happen if you don't go in there, right? A threat. Others think he's just trying to be really kind and try to persuade her and, and be gentle and lead her along. But I think this is one of those where I think it's somewhere in the middle. He's being pretty blunt with her because everybody's life is on the line. He's saying, look, there are some scary consequences here for not going forward with this. And I think part of what he means is that somehow, in some way, her identity as a Jew will be exposed. Eventually, she will be in danger. But I also think it's more than that. I think he's also saying that if you have this opportunity to do good, to protect God's people, and you don't act, then you may be judged by the Lord. Now, this is ironic, partially, because Mordecai was the one that got her into the situation in the first place, right? By saying, just don't say anything about being Jewish, right? And now he's made like a 180 turn and is going, the Lord sees everything. So I think these are complicated characters, like all of us are. And he may be, he may have contradicted this earlier, he may be saying it now, but he is still right. Esther has the ability to help God's people, and if she does not, she may well be judged by the Lord for it. Verse 14 also says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, this is in the part of the book that gets the closest. I mean, it gets like right up to the edge of mentioning God. I mean, this is like as clear as the author can make it without saying Yahweh. He's saying, listen, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And see, if you were Jewish, you knew where deliverance arises from. You remember where deliverance came from in Egypt, where deliverance came from wandering the desert, where deliverance came from when God's people were attacked by many enemies. You knew Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Mordecai is reminding Esther that God will deliver his people. He can do it through Esther or he could do it another way, but he will do it, which is a pretty bold thing for Mordecai to say on the edge of death. He says, God is doing something in history. There is a direction and a sweep to history. And he's inviting Esther to be on God's side of history. God is still in control. God will deliver his people. And this is a plea for Esther to join what God is doing and will do. And then he adds this, which is fascinating. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying it is not an accident that you are there. God is sovereign over all of this stuff. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong in listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915-562-7100. 
And also, let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 915-562-7100. Or you can email us at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.